Hello, I'm Gene Brooks. I'm standing on the coast of Liberia in West Africa on the campus of ELWA. Recently, I preached a sermon from Nehemiah chapter 2 about casting a vision. And I spoke a lot about Liberia. I hope that you will enjoy it. I want to share that with you now. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to spend a few minutes with you in God's Word. We're in the book of Nehemiah. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah. How many of you brought your Bible today? If you would hold it up, please. You held up your Bible, please. You brought it? Yeah, I see a few. Yeah, good. You should always bring your Bible to service. If we don't have this book, then there's no reason for us to meet. Because we don't have any instruction from God. So don't come to church without your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you speak to us. We'll try to find you something. All right? God bless you. Thank you, and we'll, let's begin with our scripture today. We begun with uh, the book of Nehemiah. Last week you heard an uh, incredible uh, message on the kind of man God uses from Dr. Kallenberg. Today we're going to continue that forward and we're going to see how then Nehemiah left the place of prayer and moved into action and we began to see God at work. So join me in Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning at verse 10. Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning at verse 10. When Seth... I'll start at 9, actually. So I went to the governor of the train to Euphrates, and he gave them the king's letters, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for, for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the walls. Finally, I turned back and re-entered the valley gate, the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. Because, as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. 
Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let's start rebuilding so that began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. He, we, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching and teaching of his word. The book of Nehemiah shows us Jesus Christ, our restoration. He himself is the one who restores us. And, and so the picture that we have here in the book of Nehemiah across the whole text is that Jesus Christ, our restorer. Nehemiah is a very important book for the reconstruction of Africa and Liberia in particular. Liberia with a, and especially West Africa, with a history of the slave trade, both to the Americas through the Europeans, and then also north to the Middle East, the slave trade across the Sahara to the Middle East by the Arabs. A long history of colonization in West Africa and across the continent. Because of these things, there are so many similarities between 21st century Africa and the Jewish people after the exile in the very book we're looking at today. They were rebuilding their nation and rebuilding their society, even as at the same time they saw it slipping through their fingers. Nehemiah especially provides a model for us of good governance and leadership in our communities. Nehemiah also shows us the interaction of how God works among his people in rebuilding, how God uses willing men and women to accomplish his purpose. Nehemiah helps us see that God can intervene miraculously in our lives as we serve him through what looks like ordinary people and ordinary events. You notice there are no miracles in Nehemiah whereby the laws of nature are overcome. Every miracle that takes place is very subtle. It's not big and flashy. It's very quiet. It was amazing that the king would let him go back to his homeland. Unbelievable miracle. Even more that he would finance it. Even more that he would send cavalry and officers of the Persian government to assist him. So when he rides into Jerusalem with a whole cadre of cavalry, do you think it got noticed? 
Oh my goodness, these are the people. The Persians who rule the world. And they're coming with this guy. Who is this guy? No wonder they aroused the suspicion of Sanballat and Tobiah. And later they added their friend Geshem. You know, God works miracles through ordinary events and ordinary people. God's not going to come down and rebuild hospitals and rebuild roads and stop COVID or stop HIV or end tribal conflicts. God needs men and women who are submitted to him, who will take the initiative in his name to mobilize their communities, to work to rebuild Liberia and to rebuild Africa in the power of the Spirit through prayer. Amen. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He was a man of holiness. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 1 in his prayer in verses 5 through 11 and in chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. And we're going to see it throughout the book. He was a man of leadership and he was also a man of action. Liberia and the African church needs men and women of that caliber today. So we're going to look at Nehemiah 2 today and see how, God, how Nehemiah responds to God's call on his life to rebuild his people and his nation. Just like Jesus, Nehemiah was committed to prayer. We see that in Nehemiah 1. But then in Nehemiah 2, we see that he is out. He doesn't just stay in his prayer closet and hope something will happen. He is out seeking and calling the lost to restoration. So we've seen that a God-sized vision begins in prayer. And in Nehemiah 2, it carries forward. It's Nehemiah, a shadow of the Messiah himself, who will, who will himself one day bring us the new Jerusalem. He goes out looking for the lost in restoration and looking at what has been lost to restore it. So let's take a look at the outline of Nehemiah and see where we are in the book. Nehemiah originally was one book with Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book. And so what we think happened was that as Ezra edited and compiled his book, he found the journals of Nehemiah and he placed them at the end of his book to give more information and to strengthen what he had said in the book of Ezra. And so the book of Nehemiah was a partner. So we see we have in the... In, there are three parts to the book of Nehemiah. The first part is the return and rebuilding. And today what we're going to look at is a bit, uh, 2, 1 through 6 and 2, 17 to 20, where Nehemiah returns and surveys and he casts a vision. Then coming next is Nehemiah 3, where he rebuilds the walls and the gates. I'm looking forward to preaching that message next week. Then, we, uh, then it moves to the next section of Nehemiah, and that is chapters 8 through 10, Repentance and Revival. And we see that is the time when Ezra reads, has the great Bible reading, and as a result, revival breaks out. And then we go to the third section of Nehemiah, the residence and reform, where they take residence in the city, and reform takes place, although there is some backsliding 
and it must be corrected. And so we see we, we are in the first part of the book of Nehemiah. We are in the, one of the most important parts today because this is where everything changes. He has been in a place of prayer. And now he goes and looks to see if it is as bad as his brother Hananiah told him. And he sees it's at least as bad, if not worse. Then he goes to the leaders of Israel and he says, here's what we're going to do. And they say, let's do it. So I want to show you today what God's word says about a God-directed vision. The first thing I want you to see today is that a God-directed vision arises from a real need, a real need. Notice, uh, I want you to notice in the, in the text here in chapter 2 uh, that this vision begins in prayer. Now, it would be neglectful, it would be derelict of me if I were not to say that prior to the passage that we're looking at today, in Nehemiah 1, a God-directed vision comes from God when we wrestle in prayer. That's where it comes from. If you, you hear a man or a woman to stand up and give you a vision for something, and they have not been previously on their knees, then maybe you just don't pay attention to that one. But someone who has been in a prayer closet, they have invested the hours in prayer. They have spent time with God. And God has taken time to show them the direction. That is the person to follow. That's the person to listen to. Because here in Nehemiah, this God-directed vision came from, him, came from God himself. And so today, with the prayer work done, we're going to move forward with Nehemiah into living out the vision and the call that God had put on him. Unless we spend time with God to hear his heart, we cannot receive a call to a work. But after that, you cannot just sit and hope that God will work. If God has shown you a need and he has burdened you with it, he is calling you to it. Like Nehemiah, you have to make up your mind to shake off the grief, put on your work clothes, and go out and do the work. And we see in verse 10, two men right out the gate when Samballot and Tobiah heard about this. They were very much disturbed. So immediately, we have these two men who are mentioned in verse 10. I'm going to deal with them more at the end of the message. But here I want you to notice that before Nehemiah could even step out the door to do the work, they're already someone that's not happy with them. But I will just go uh, right here. I will say that for many people, when you, uh, God has a vision, there will be opposition at the very start. It will come immediately, especially at that start. And, it and sometimes for some people, it raises serious doubts about whether you're in God's will or not. In fact, I have had people tell me when I was, we were in the States waiting for permission to come back because of COVID. 
I have people who will call me and say, you know what? You're not taking care of your family. What you need to do, I think God is trying to tell you you should not go back to Africa. You should stay in the States because of COVID. And you are, if you're going to take them to Africa, you're not taking care of your family. And you, you are doing wrong and you are out of God's will by going back to the mission field. You don't believe missionaries hear things like that, but they do. We hear it often. There's always opposition when God gives you a vision. In Nehemiah's case, the opposition came from those who despised the things of God. And actually, their opposition was affirmation of God's call. If those people are against it, then I know God's in it. And I want you to notice something else in the text. Look in verse 11. He says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days. He says he stayed three days. Nehemiah arrived and he was silent for three days. Now, if you've ever taken a trip in Liberia over the road, up country, you know, especially if you get to the age I am, that once you arrive, you're going to need two or three days just to get over the trip, right? Because it bounced you all the way, right? It takes that long for your muscles and your bones to feel healthy again. And so no doubt, after an 800-mile trip, Nehemiah was taking a rest for three days. But what else was he doing? He was likely in prayer. He was resting up for the work. But there's something more here than just the fact that he was in prayer. When Ezra had arrived years before, he also waited three days before he did anything. You can check it out in Ezra chapter 8 verse 15 and verse 32. Earlier than that, Queen Esther had asked the Jews to fast and pray for three days before she went to confront the king. Check it out. Esther 4, 16. The three days are a shadow of the three days in Jerusalem surrounding the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he himself, the king, Jesus, spiritually tore down and rebuilt the temple and a wall of security and salvation in himself. Three days after Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he decided to make a personal inspection of the city wall to see how broken down it really was. He had heard about it, but obviously when he comes into town with this entourage of cavalry officers from the most from the from the superpower of the world, he attracted attention. And for him to go out in the day with this group of guys who are going to insist they go with him is going to create more concern and problem. But he needed to see what was going on. So he chose to go out at night, unannounced, to avoid attention, so he could really see what was going on himself without all of the distraction that would be attending him if he went out with all of this cavalry. The word used in verse 13 and in verse 15 for inspecting the walls means to look into something very carefully. It's a medical term. It's the one, a word that a doctor would use for probing a wound to see what is the cause of the problem. 
Or what is the extent of the damage? He's looking into the wound. And Nehemiah was in Jerusalem walking and riding and inspecting the wound of his people. So put up the please, put up the uh, picture of the map of the uh, city. And I want to explain to you where he is doing what he is doing. So he comes out at the valley gate here on the, on the west side and he goes south. You see where it says Nehemiah's night walk. He walks, he, he comes down by horse by the gate and by the pool of Siloam where uh, 450 years later, 460 years later or so, Jesus is going to heal a man by the pool, right? That's the pool. And he will continue down around the very bottom of the city at the dung gate. It's called the dung gate because that's where they would put all their garbage, would, all, would come out of the city there. That's where it was dumped. And then he would turn north and he went up. And he got so far about along the areas where today archaeologically we know that David's palace was in, in this area. And it's possible that the, the burial place of the kings of Israel is in this general area. They have not been found yet. But when it's found, it will fulfill a prophecy in Jeremiah. But when we, but as he got along that area, it's very steep. I've been in Israel, I've been, I've walked around this wall. It's different today, but this area of the wall is about the same. And as you go along the wall here, it's very steep. It goes like this. You see? It goes just like that. It's almost that steep going down into the valley. And so the wall had fallen and crumbled so much that there was no place for his horse or his donkey or mule, whatever he was riding, for him to put his feet without stumbling. And so he had to get down and he had to walk across the rubble. <coughs> People of Liberia, you have had to get down off your mountain and you have had to walk through the rubble. And as you look, you see more rubble ahead. Who among us is the Nehemiah? And so, as he got to this place, he went up to, I think it says, he went up to uh, overlook the Kidron Valley, but he had to turn back at the northeast corner near the great projecting tower. It says that he had to turn around because he couldn't go any farther. He gave up. And he came back and retraced his steps all the way back around the south side, back in, and went back in the valley gate. That was his tour. He didn't see the north or the west sides of the wall. Now go back to uh, Lee Rittmeyer's uh, rendering of the city. So this is, this is a picture. There's a bigger one somewhere. I think it's toward the beginning. I want you to see now here is a picture of the city so he would have he would have come out here along this way and came down this came around the end and here's the rubble you 
spin. He can't go any farther. So he gets down and he goes by foot, but he can't even go very far. He turns around and he goes back in the way he came. The valley gate. God takes us through valleys, right? Jerusalem was very much reduced in size. Keep that there, please. He was is very much reduced in size. This was this was the wall after it was completed. When when Nehemiah went around it, it was not it was not all this was not here. This was what was built in 52 days. All of this part of the city, he abandoned it. It was just abandoned. And so Jerusalem was reduced in size from the time that Babylon was there. And he apparently decided to just consolidate what was left. This, was, uh, this area is called the City of David. Is it possible to... And then, and then up here is the temple. Solomon's temple is up here. And the only thing is there is, at this time, a foundation for a new temple. And so, you see, very much reduced in size. The city was reduced to one and a half miles to walk around it, and only about 80 to 90 acres in size. Do you notice that Nehemiah did not weep when he actually saw what he had only heard about in chapter 1? You know why? Because the tear, time for tears had passed. It was now the time for action. We can't look around at our circumstances, at our family situation. We can't look around at our nation. We can't look at the condition of our society, the hopelessness in the eyes of the motorbike boys, and be overcome with despair. We must not be paralyzed by what we see. And when it's time for work to be done, Nehemiah set aside the weeping because it was time to do something. Amen. The Jews who lived in the midst of it had grown into despair, their own complacency, their apathy, they were giving up. Nehemiah said, no, it could be better than this. God is at work and we need to join him in that work. Liberia and the continent of Africa have many problems. There's poor infrastructure, there's conflicts, there's tribalism, there's corruption. There are Africans holding back fellow Africans. There are diseases, there are natural disasters. God is looking for men and women who, like Nehemiah, will have the burden to do something about these situations with urgency. The road ahead calls for hard work and planning. This is not primarily the job for the strangers here, for the outsiders here, for the missionaries here, for the NGOs here, for the UN here. It's not their job. It's your job. Let us not look to others to do the work that we are called to do in, this own, in your own land. Let Liberians be the first to help their own people. Then like Nehemiah, then you turn and you ask the king for help. You can ask others for help. Second thing that we see in this passage, in verses 17 and 18, we see that God, a God-directed vision unifies people where God is at work. He says in verse 17, Then I said to them, The next day Nehemiah came together 
with the Jewish leaders and he told them all about his intentions. And what was their response? Their response was, let us start rebuilding. And we see in this how Nehemiah cast a vision for them. And I want to show you what I feel the Lord showed me in this text about motivating others to do a new thing, to cast a vision for others of something better than where we are now. The first thing that I see here in the passage is that he connected with the people. He did not come in as some, uh, like I see some Liberians will do, they will come back from a foreign country and they've made money, and now they have a different kind of attitude than when they left. Now, I'm just being honest with you. Because I encountered them on the plane. And I see that this is not the Liberians I know. What happened to these people? But they have done well for themselves, and then they come back and they have a certain attitude that is not helpful. Right? And so he did not, Nehemiah did not come back that way. He came back to be a worker and to work together with his people. He connected with the people. He said to them, you see the trouble we are in? He didn't say, you people need to do something about your country. I left and made something of myself. And what, what happened to you while, you were, while I was gone? No. He came back and said, we are in trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been burned. What can we do? And, how, and he let them hear. They all came together and they heard. This is something that I've learned in Liberia that I love. It used to frustrate me to go to meetings. And we would sit for hours and hours and not accomplish in my mind very much but just discussion. But when I came to Liberia, the Lord tested that. <laughs> so when we get together in Liberia and West Africa, we all have to discuss. We all have to put in our opinion, right? And then we come to a decision together. And once we go out of that meeting, if it took four or five hours when we come out, we're going somewhere. At least we hope so. He connected with the people. And then the second thing is he told them this is the reality we have now. He did not sugarcoat it. He didn't make it sound better than it was. He said this is the facts. He said hey, he helped the people see the current reality and the problem that we face. The third thing that he did was he said, there's a different reality that's ahead. He helped the people see a new reality and it was based in the hope in their Lord. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And he, and you see the result of casting that vision. He helped people see the result of what would happen. We will no longer be in disgrace. The King James says, we will no longer be a reproach. And then he gives a testimony. He says, he gives a testimony to God for the moment. He says, I also told them of the, my gracious hand of my God upon me. So he told them what happened in Susa when he prayed and how God had worked. He says, and he gives them credibility. He, show, he gives them a story of other credible witnesses who see the wisdom in the vision he's presenting them. He says, and what the king said to me. And so God gives us a vision. When he gives us a vision, 
This is a model that Nehemiah gives us for how we are to communicate a vision. We connect with people. We are honest about the facts, but we also give a, a vision for the future. You know, when I ride through, through communities in Liberia, I see people sitting down and they're barely surviving. And it's been that way for so long, they've forgotten that there's a better way. You ride through the city, you go through the different places, and you, they've forgotten that there's a better way to live. Those people have all died who live that way. And we need a Nehemiah who will say, no, you can live better than this. Your families can do better than this. Jesus Christ can bring revival to our nation. Third thing, God, a God-directed vision attracts opposition. You see in verses 19 and 20, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem mocked and really ridiculed us. Now who were these guys? Who were Sanballat and Tobiah? When Nehemiah came to Samaria, he encountered these two. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north. And apparently there was no governor in Judea, so he sort of ran things in Judea to the south as well. He was not interested in some big shot Jew from the Persian court coming into his territory where he was the big fish in a small pond and messing up things for him. He liked Judah weak. He liked that. And if this man came in, Samaria might become weakened in comparison to his neighbor Judah, Judea. The term Horonite is interesting. It may refer to a place in Samaria, but it probably more refers to a place in Moab, across the river. Tobiah seems to have been Sanballat's second in command, and a designation suggests he was uh, originally perhaps an Ammonite slave. Perhaps he was in charge of the Ammon area east of Judea, which is now Syria, but on the east side of the Jordan. And now we add Geshem the Arab, who joins the first two. So here we have Israel's two old enemies from the wilderness, the Moabites and the Ammonites, the ones who stood in the way of Israel coming into the Promised Land. And what is really cool about this is that we have actual proof that these guys were real outside of the Bible. There was a treasure trove of ancient manuscripts found in the late 1800s on a place called Elephantine Island in the Nile River in Egypt, where Jewish colonists live in exile. There are letters going back and forth on papyrus from these Jews living there in the fifth century BC. Can you believe that these letters mention this very Sanballat, who is here in the text, as serving as governor of Samaria, as late as 408, he would have been a very old man by that time. Uh, the Elephantine papyri also mention Nehemiah, by the way. He is also mentioned in those. Sanballat and Tobiah bookend the section. When I say they bookend, I'm talking about a, like a shelf of books and you have something holding up the book on this side and something holding up the books on this side, right? And all in the middle of the books. But on each end, you have something, the same thing. They book in this. Verse 10, Sambal and Tobiah. 
Verse 19 and 20, Samballad and Tobiah. They are the bookends. And there's a reason for that. The reason is this. If it's, it is impossible to be in the will of God without facing attack, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The enemies of our soul still use these same strategies, threats, and plots to find a way to discourage us or hinder the work of God. Like Nehemiah, we've got to remember who has commissioned us. It was not our idea. We need to focus on prayer and on dependence on Him, and we disregard everything that's designed to weaken our hands. So how should you navigate an open attack? You stay on your knees, and you commit yourself to the project. Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Nehemiah answered their threats in verse 20, and he pointed back to God and His calling. People, there are times in life that the only thing that keeps you in the fight, the only thing that keeps you getting up every morning and going is God's call on your life. Amen. Has God called you to raise a godly children in your home? Has God called you to a job that is difficult? Has God called you to something? Then you have to focus on Him. It's His call on your life. It's His call to the task. It's His call to the wall. It's His call to the fight. It's His call to protect. It's His call to walk Amen. and work and provide. It's His call to serve others and to see them come to know Him as Lord and Savior. Amen. Alan Redpath in his commentary on Nehemiah writes, Nehemiah was a man with a burden who had been sent and supplied. A man with vision and vocation. He was a man whose whole attitude was a declaration of war against things as they were. And as the enemy saw his determination to retrieve the ground that was lost, at once they were around him to oppose him. There is no battle anywhere in the spiritual sense until the Christian pitches in. And there is no concern in the mind of Satan about the church at all until he sees a selfless Christian seeking only the glory of God, determined to challenge the satanic grip upon man's hearts and lives in the name of the Lord. Does your service for God worry Satan at all? Or is Satan ignoring you because there's nothing to worry him? When it counted, Nehemiah was focused in the steel rod of himself on the work God gave him. His whole concentration was focused on the Lord in every circumstance. Whether he was surveying the damage, whether he was casting a vision before his own people, or whether he was encountering opposition. And I'm telling you today that I'm praying that God would raise up someone in Liberia Amen. who will lead the way for the church to see revival in this generation. That we can see, if we see revival, you will see it in the book of Nehemiah. When we see revival, then we will see reform. Amen. And revival always comes from the Word of God. Amen. Lord,
We are completely dependent on you. Here we stand in a nation that everyone says has no hope. They shake their heads and walk away. The foreigners come and do one term and they're gone. You never see them again. They leave hopeless and beaten. And Liberia beat them. And the people here continue to be and they work. But they hurt. They suffer. Raise up, Lord, in this nation, Nehemiahs, in our churches, that will bring the word of God to people so that we will see revival among our people, so that we will see reform in this nation, and so that we will see this nation serving you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. enjoyed this sermon, a prophetic call to Liberians to rebuild their nation. I'm Gene Brooks. And thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way.